sisters in Christ, and I count it all joy to continue our series of addresses on the attributes of our great God. It was a rich blessing for me personally to be asked to reflect again upon the attributes of the Christian God when I first wrote these addresses. And I want to thank this session. I want to thank Tony uh, again for graciously asking me to deliver seven of these addresses to you. It's my prayer that God will multiply his grace and peace to you through my words but only to the degree, of course, that they reflect the truth of Holy Scripture. As you know, we've been using as our guide the shorter catechism definition of God. It's on that purple sheet. If you don't have the purple sheet, if you will open up that Trinity hymnal, this is one reason why I love that red-bound Trinity hymnal. You have your church's confession right there, so when your pastor refers to it, you can actually turn and read what our confession says. If you'll turn to Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question four, you'll see it there. We have been using as our guide that definition of God, which statement the assembly, as you know, wrote for the church's children. Uh, a definition, by the way, that Charles Hodge of Princeton Seminary opined was probably the best extra-biblical definition of God ever penned by uninspired man. That's a great, great definition of God. It really is a remarkable reduction of what the Westminster Assembly's Confession of Faith states much more fully about the nature of God. If you want to turn to the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's there too. Turn to chapter 2 of the confession and let's look at ad, let's look at articles 1 and 2 listen as i read the fuller confession of faith chapter 2 articles 1 and 2 uh, the framers of the confession back in 1648 or so wrote there is but one only living and true god who is infinite in being and perfection a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory." most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, not deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, 
and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His, his knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent, which means that is not dependent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. In this confessional description of God that I just read to you, my beloved brothers and sisters, in my opinion, you just heard more truth about God than the average Christian hears about the being and character of God from his church's pulpit in a year, if not in a lifetime. Pastors are simply not preaching on the nature of God. And they need to. When they don't, that's why people fall into all manner of error about the kind of God who is really there. We need to really reintroduce a whole generation of Christians uh, to the God of Holy Scripture. They just don't know who God really is. Well, uh, let's uh, now invoke the blessing of this God on this morning's exposition. Our Father and our God, heartened by your exceedingly great and precious promises to us, we bring our praises, however imperfect, to join in that great song of praise, honor, glory, and blessing being sung in heaven that is directed toward you who, together with your beloved Son and the Eternal Spirit, are the thrice holy God and our Creator and Redeemer. We have assembled, assembled once again this morning to learn about you. As we consider today your immutable being and character, help us, Lord, to handle aright your word of truth. Seal upon our hearts the truths that we will survey this morning for the benefit of this assembly and for the glory and cause of Jesus Christ our Lord. And I ask this in the blessed and holy name of Jesus Christ and for his cause. Amen. <clears throat> this morning, as I've already said, we're moving to a consideration of the Shorter Catechism's affirmation that God is unchanging in his being. Here the Catechism affirms the unchangeable nature and character of God, often referred to in the theological literature as his immutability. This doctrine affirms that God, ontologically, that is, God with reference to himself, with reference to his own being, God, ontologically and decretally speaking, does not and cannot change. Such verses as the following, among many that might be cited, provide the biblical base for this classic Christian conviction. 
I'll again not read the uh, the scripture texts. I'll, I mean, I'll read the text. I won't give you their addresses. If you want any of their scripture addresses, feel free to ask me later. I eliminate them for the sake of time. The Bible tells us that the that God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should change His mind. Does He speak? and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. Those are rhetorical questions expecting the response, of course not. He doesn't make a promise that he does not then fulfill. The glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. The earth and the heavens will perish, but you remain. They will wear out, but you remain the same. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. We better be glad that God is an immutable God. For if he were not an immutable God, you and I would both be in, in deep trouble. I read it again, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. As surely as God is faithful, Paul writes, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Pastors, when you preach the gospel, you are preaching the amen, the so be it, you're preaching the amen to the one eternal yes that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Because God wanted to make the unchangeable character of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, namely his purpose and covenant oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may be greatly encouraged. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And finally, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And we could add more passages to that, but those are, I think, uh, the better ones. Uh, These verses affirm the immutability of God's character, his being, and the constancy of his eternal purpose, which perfections guarantee that God remains always the same living and true God, always faithful to himself, his decrees, and his works. This entire universe is in a state 
of constant change and flux. And because of Adam's fall, as the hymn says, change and decay in all around we see. But the one living and true God in his infinite being is perpetually the same, and he remains everlastingly the same as the great thou who changest not. There was never a time when he was not, and there will never be a time when he shall cease to be. He cannot change for the better because he is already perfect, and being perfect he cannot change for the worse. He is altogether unaffected ontologically by anything outside of himself. Neither ontological improvement nor ontological deterioration is possible for him. Wherever, whatever were his attributes of old, that they are now, and of each of his attributes as they pass before our viewing stand, we may sing as it was in the beginning, tis now and ever shall be, world without end. Now I must issue a caveat. Classical theists have sometimes represented God's immutability in such a sense that they have portrayed him as being virtually frozen. You know, he's unchanging, so they, they portrayed him as being virtually frozen in a timeless immobility and impassibility. Now, I just used the word impassibility. It means being open or liable to experience emotion. So they say, God is unchanging. He cannot experience any, any immobility and any emotion. They reason that any movement or feeling on his part, such as anger or joy or grief, must either improve his condition or detract from it. But since, they argue, neither is possible for a perfect being, he remains, to use James Packer's characterization of this position, James Packer doesn't hold this, but this is how he himself characterizes the position, there are those classical theists who say that God is, remains in an eternally frozen pose as immobile and impassable, that is, inaccessible to and incapable of feelings or emotions. But my beloved brothers and sisters, this is, this is not the Bible's description of God. What we want to have when everything is over and said and done, we want to have a, a, a comprehension of God in our minds which will pass biblical muster. And this is not the Bible's description of God. The God of the Bible is constantly acting into and reacting to the human condition. In no sense is the God of Scripture insulated or detached from, unconcerned with, or insensitive and indifferent to the joys and miseries of fallen mankind. Everywhere the Bible depicts him as both, both as one who registers grief and sorrow over and displeasure and wrath against man's sin, and as one who is in who in compassion and love 
has taken effective steps in Jesus Christ to reverse the misery of his elect and even the rest of mankind to a degree. Even the non-elect receive some of the crumbs which fall from the table of grace. I want you to get that. Even the non-elect are benefited by God's grace to the elect. Everywhere, Holy Scripture portrays him as entering deeply into authentic interpersonal relations of love with his people and truly caring about them and their happiness. As Norris Clark states, the biblical God is a religiously available God on the personal level. That says it well. To say then that God is unchangeable or immutable must not be construed to mean that he cannot and does not act. The God of the Bible acts, indeed acts with passion on every page of Scripture, even in the book of Esther, where his name is not mentioned. In other words, he is not static in his, in his immutability. He is dynamic in his immutability. But his dynamic immutability in no way affects his godness. To the contrary, he would cease to be the God of Scripture if he did not will and act in the ways the Bible ascribes to him. But he always wills and acts, as Isaiah declared, in faithfulness to his decrees. Isaiah sings, in perfect faithfulness, you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. Louis Burkhoff is correct, in my opinion, when he concludes the divine immutability should not be understood as implying immobility, as if there were no movement in God. The Bible teaches us that God enters into manifold relations with man and, as it were, lives their lives with them. There is change around about him, change in the relations of men to him, but there is no change in his being, his attributes, his purpose, his motives of action, or his promises. Thus, as Jürgen Moltmann has most notably contended in our time, whenever and wherever God's impassibility, now remember what impassibility means, it means an incapability of feelings or emotions. And Jürgen Moltmann argues that whenever and wherever God's impassibility is interpreted to mean that he is impervious to human pain or incapable of empathizing with human grief, we must renounce it and steadfastly distance ourselves from it. For while such is descriptive of Aristotle's concept of God, Aristotle's God was simply thought, not thinking about you. Aristotle's God is simply thought, thinking thought, but not thought about anything. Or of Buddha, well, if, and that's descriptive of Buddha, but it is in no sense descriptive of the God of Holy Scripture, who as a God of infinite love, showed his love to suffering humankind by giving his own son up to the death 
of the cross. John R. W. Stott, in his wonderful book entitled The Cross of Christ, John R. Stott bears testimony to my point here in these words. Listen to Stott. He says, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how can one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, Stott writes, and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while I have had to turn away, and in imagination I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding with thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. This, Stott says, is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's self-justification in such a world as ours. End of quote. I think that is a great statement by John Stott. When our confession of faith declares then that God is without passions, it simply means that he has no bodily passions such as the need to satisfy hunger, or as I said last night, the desire to fulfill himself sexually. We do, however, affirm that God is impassable in one sense. God is impassable in the sense that the creature cannot inflict suffering, pain, or any sort of distress or discomfort upon God against his will. Insofar as God enters into such experiences, it is always the result of his deliberate, voluntary decision. God's experiences do not come upon him as ours come upon us. Ours come upon us often unforeseen, unwilled, unchosen, resented, and forced upon us against our wills. His are foreknown, willed, and chosen by him, and are never forced upon him from any power outside of himself, apart from his determination to accept them. In short, God is never the creature's victim, unwilling victim. Even when Jesus hung upon the cross, his suffering was according to the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And he, him, and he himself, Jesus said, you will recall, no one takes my life from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This I received from my father. Someone may be asking here with regard to God's decretal immutability, if God always acts in accordance with his predetermined eternal purpose that is unalterably fixed, how are we to explain the fact that the scriptures will speak of God as being grieved over some prior action on his part or of his changing his mind with regard to a certain stated course of action or seemingly expressing a willingness to chart a new course of action. If such grief and alteration of mind are aspects of his divine immutability, it's asked, what then does his immutability mean? Has it, has it not been reduced in meaning to zero? How do these scriptural data square with the Bibles and the Reformed theology's teaching of the unalterable fixity of God's eternal decree. Well, I will make a threefold response and will try really to be brief in doing so. First, where upon a superficial reading, the biblical text might seem to suggest that God arbitrarily alters his course of action away from a previously declared course of action, one should understand this new, this so-called new course as only his settled, immutably certain response to a change in the human response to him and to his holy laws in accordance with the principle of divine conduct that he enunciated himself respectively. Well, let me just read one verse, Jeremiah 18. If at any time... At any time, God says, I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed. And if that nation, I warn, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at, other, at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. What this means, ladies and gentlemen, is that God always acts the same way toward moral good and the same way toward moral evil. The things he loved in Abraham's day, he still loves today and will love forever. The things he hated in Abraham's day, he still hates today and will hate forever. The world's morality may and does and shall in the future deteriorate. But God's immutable standard of morality, summarily declared in, the, in stone in the Ten Commandments, will never change. And he will always respond to men's morality or immorality the same way. In every relationship he has with mankind, the immutable moral fixity of his character is and will be evident. And because this is so self-evidently true, 
God did not deem it necessary when he inspired the scriptures to attach to every promise he made or to every prediction of judgment he issued the corresponding conditions for weal or for woe. His stated principle of conduct is always operative, and if the biblical interpreter does not realize this, he may conclude wrongly that God has broken a promise or has failed to carry out a predicted judgment when in reality he is acting according to his declared principle of conduct. The second thing I would say is this. God being the God of infinite goodness that he is, we should not be surprised at all to read that in response to the evil of those who refuse to obey him, he could be grieved that he made them. In fact, I would argue that uh, God being the God that he is, it would be very strange if we did not hear him say that man's sin and evil were sources of great grief to him. God himself declared, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Just as God, because he is holy, cannot look upon man's sin with any degree of approbation, so also because he is good, he cannot look upon the sinner's doom with the slightest degree of positive pleasure. The creature's obedience always brings him joy. The creature's disobedience always grieves him, and he does not hesitate to tell us so. When a sinner repents, there is always joy in the presence of the angels. When a child of God falls into sin, the Holy Spirit is always grieved, and he does not hesitate to tell us so. So what many interpreters would assert are examples of the mutability of God's purpose are in actuality remarkable examples of God's fixed character and immutable purpose to relate himself correspondingly to men precisely in accordance with their attitude toward him and his wise and holy precepts. Third, with respect, this is one that uh, the Arminian loves to uh, throw at us, with respect to God's threat to destroy Israel and to begin anew with Moses in Exodus 32. While God's anger against Israel was real and in no sense feigned, God knew that his threat to destroy Israel would not be actualized. He knew that because as his word to Moses, here's his words to Moses, leave me alone that I may. But he, but there is Moses standing before him as Israel's mediator and God knew that Moses would intercede on Israel's behalf. By determining that his response to Israel's rebellion would turn on Moses' mediation, God was teaching everyone thereafter, including us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come, 
by this incident that he always relates himself to his covenant people salvifically through a mediator. By his mediation in Exodus 32, Moses was signifying the central redemptive principle of salvation through mediation. And in so doing, his mediation became, by divine design, an Old Testament type of Christ's mediatorial work. So again, what some might perceive as an example of the mutable character of God's purpose is in actuality a remarkable example of God's immutably fixed purpose to relate himself to his people always on the basis of the intercession of an appointed mediator. Enough of theologizing. Let's turn our attention now away from our exposition of the doctrine to some applications of it for our lives and the lives of men in general. I want to make three such applications. I'm aware when I say what I am now about to say that I'm getting ahead of myself so far as the series is concerned, but I think the following things need to be said in order to drive home my first point of application. We haven't talked about his wisdom, but here we go. Was God all wise when he laid the foundations of the earth, when he spoke, and the mountains and the seas appeared? The Bible says he was. Then, because he is immutable, he is precisely the same all-wise God today in his dealings with you, with this world, and he will remain so forever. You, you, I'm sure sometimes Christians can be found wringing their hands and wondering, is anybody in control? Look at this world. Is anybody in control? Yes, someone is in control. And it's a man who is in control. And you know his name. Jesus Christ is the one who is ruling and reigning over this universe today. And everything is falling out according to his eternal purpose. He is not less skillful today. Neither has God become mentally senile, nor does he have less knowledge now. He is still, all, he is still the same, all-wise, all-knowing God that he always has been. Was God mighty? when he spoke this world into existence out of non-existence. The Bible says he was. Then because he is immutable, he is precisely the same mighty God today in his dealings with you, and he will remain so forever. The arm of his strength has not palsied in the slightest. He is the same infinite colossus of might today, and the strength of his power has not sapped in the slightest degree. Was he just and holy in the past when he destroyed the antediluvian world by the Genesis flood, when he rained fire and brimstone upon from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah, when he poured out his destructive plagues upon Egypt? Was he just and holy when he did that? The Bible says he was. Then because he is immutable, 
He is precisely the same just and holy God today in his dealings with you, and he will remain so forever. What he hated when he sent the flood, he still hates, and what he loved then, he still loves. What he hated when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he still hates, and what he loved then, he still loves. Was he truthful in the past? when he bound himself by covenant oath to save his chosen ones. The Bible says he was. Then because he is immutable, he is precisely the same truthful God today in his dealings with you and will remain so forever. His veracity is immutable. His word is forever settled in the heavens. Was he good and kind Generous and gentle, benevolent and plenteous in mercy and pity, full of steadfast loving kindness and forgiving in the past, when again and again he forgave backsliding Israel for its sins. The Bible says he was. Then, because he is immutable, he is precisely the same good, kind, generous, Gentle, benevolent, forgiving God today in his dealings with you, plenteous in mercy, full of loving kindness, and will remain so forever. His love is everlasting, and his mercies will never cease, for they too are everlasting. Did he have a plan of redemption before the creation of the world that included you? The Bible says he did. Then because he is immutable, he has precisely that same plan of redemption today that involves you and me and he will have it forever. You and I are still beneficiaries of it. Not one of its stipulations will he ever alter. Did he make us any promises in that plan? The Bible says he did then those promises are still binding upon him today and shall be binding upon him forever. For by two immutable things, his eternal purpose and his binding covenant oath, he has confirmed and sealed his word. As I glory to tell you, his promises are not yes and no. They are yes, and the gospel declares the amen. In sum... Bring before me any attribute of God you choose, and I will write on it, Semper idem, always the same. And you, my brothers and sisters, knowing and trusting this one living and true God who is always the same, can sing with complete confidence, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. If truth be told, it is only such a God as our God who can be known and trusted. A mutable God can never be really known or trusted for anything, for it changes. What such a God is today, it will not be tomorrow. What it says is true today may not be true tomorrow. What it says it will do can never be relied upon. 
Given then these implications, I launch now my second point of application with this question. Think it. Think about it. In what does your permanency in the faith reside? Peter thought it resided in him. And he assured the Lord that though all the other disciples would forsake him, yet he would never forsake him. He was wrong, of course. All of us are all too aware of his miserable failure. So I ask again, wherein, my brothers and sisters, wherein resides your permanency in the faith? In your fidelity to Christ? In your love for God? Hardly. Your fidelity and your love are much too fickle, much too similar to the unstable waters of the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Well, in what then does the permanency of your faith reside? Well, what declares the scripture? Here it is. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. If God were a God who changed like shifting shadows, we who, in our natural state of sin, are even now still rightly faggots for eternal fire, would be consumed. No earthly father in this world would ever endure the rebellion of his children, had his sons and daughters provoked him even a nano, nano amount as much as God has been provoked by us, the sons of Jacob. Even in the state of grace, our best works, the confession of faith tells us, even in the state of grace, now this should be an encouragement, what I'm getting ready to tell you, even in the state of grace, our best works are mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment, that they are in themselves blamable and reprovable in his sight, but they are accepted by God. Get it now. Your works are accepted by God as good because being ourselves in Christ God imputes also to our works the righteousness of Christ, his Son. So our permanency in the faith ultimately resides in none of our achievements or our doings. That which stands this very hour between us and hell's everlasting lake of fire is the impregnable wall of God's immutable decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within us, and the nature of the covenant of grace. That's Westminster Confession of Faith 17.2. There is an impregnable wall standing today, I say, between you and hell, and none of that, nothing in that impregnable wall is any of your works.
It is all up to God. And he is immutably faithful. Though we prove unfaithful, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Our our permanency in the faith resides then in the immutable character and faithfulness of God. For reasons in himself and for none in us, God set his love upon his chosen ones before the creation of the world and predestined us to become conformed to the image of his Son, that his Son might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters in all to the praise of his glorious grace. So we who are in Christ are already seated with God on his throne in heaven as far as God's immutable determinations are concerned, which is just to say that in the immutable mind of God, he sees us as already glorified. As you and I were in his eternal plan before the creation of the world, we are still permanently in his plan, united as we are to Christ and in his high priestly ministry, and we ever will be. So our permanency in the faith is rooted in the Father's immutable decree, in his Son's unchanging priesthood, in the Spirit's ever-abiding presence, and in the triune God's perpetual covenant fidelity. Hence, you and I can never finally be lost. If one child of God could ever eventually perish, then God would not be unchanging and we might well all perish. Then no gospel promise would be certainly true. God's word would then be untrusty, untrustworthy and nothing in it would be worthy of our acceptance. But because God is unchangingly faithful to us, we know that he loves us and will love us forever. And each of us who knows that he is the object of God's eternal, unchanging love can sing with little children, Did Jesus once upon me shine? Then Jesus is forever mine. My third point of application is this. If every divine promise of blessing is immutable, if our Lord's high priestly ministry saves to the uttermost and forever all those who come to God through him, if every covenant oath of God is unalterable so that the salvation of his elect is particularly and unchangeably designed and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. And I just cited again our confession of faith. Then, if that's all true, then this mad, insane world, it's an insane world. I say that on the basis of Scripture. For Jesus says, that the man in the far country, when he came to himself, the implication is when he finally got his mind straightened out. And until men come to God, they are, there's a certain kind of insanity. There's a spiritual insanity in mankind. 
And that's why I say, then this mad, insane world must be confronted through what it regards as the foolishness of gospel proclamation with the fact that it is equally true that God is also unchanging in his threatenings and that he will someday judge the secrets of men's hearts through Christ Jesus according to the gospel. John Dick, in his lectures on theologies, simply a Scottish pastor, marvelous work, however, John Dick states the divine immutability like the cloud that interposed between the Israelites and the Egyptian army has a dark as well as a light side. It ensures the execution of his threatenings as well as the performance of his promises and destroys the hope that the guilty fondly, that the guilty fondly cherish that God will be all lenity to his frail and erring creatures and that they will be much more lightly dealt with than the declarations of his own word would lead us to expect. We oppose to these deceitful and presumptuous speculations the solemn truth that God is unchangeable in veracity and purity, in faithfulness and justice. What this means, my dear ones, is this. God has immutably declared that he will save only those who trust the saving work of his Son. And he will consign to perdition those who do not trust the saving work of his Son. So let the unbelieving moralist be as good, as moral, as honest, as upright as he can be. He will still be Condemned. For God's declaration will forever stand, He only who trusts my Son shall be saved. He who does not trust my Son is condemned already and shall be damned forever. This threat of God is as unchangeable as God Himself. After 10,000 years of conscious torment in hell, the moralist will still read this divine edict in burning letters over him. He only who trusts my son shall be saved. He who does not trust my son is condemned already and shall be damned forever. After 10 billion ages of anguish in hell have rolled away, the man who looked to his own morality in this life for his salvation will still see it emblazoned over the great chasm that has been fixed and that shall remain so. He only who trusts my son shall be saved. He who does not trust my son is condemned already and shall be damned forever. And when that tormented moralist, perhaps ever hoping in the words of Alfred Lord Tennyson's In Memoriam, that at last, far off, at last, winter will change to spring, thinks that the wheel of eternity must surely have spun out its last thread after it seems that the ages of the ages have passed, after it seems that Every particle of what we call eternity must surely have run out. 
he will still see written in flaming letters burning as brightly as they ever did these words, He only who trusts my son shall be saved. He who does not trust my son is condemned already and shall be damned forever. No, dear friends, I get no pleasure at all in saying it, but say it I must. The words of Dante's Inferno do indeed apply here to the impenitent in hell. Abandon every hope, ye who enter here. Dear brothers and sisters, doesn't that stir you? It ought to. May Christ's love for us constrain us. In view of the dreadful final plight of the impenitent, to teach and to proclaim with power and perseverance to the lost marvelous of this world the unsearchable riches of Christ before it is for them everlastingly too late for once consigned to hell, they will be in hell forever and forever. Well, for the last few minutes we have been working through the Bible's teaching on God's unchanging essence, his immutable character, his unfailing covenant faithfulness, and some of their implications for us. I have prayed all week that God's Spirit would take this address and meet you where you are at this time in your life, in your joys and in your sorrows, in your plenty and in your want, in your encouragements and in your discouragements, in your serenities and in your perplexities. I cannot apply this address directly to you myself. I know that. I know it all too well. Only the Spirit of God, because he is God and knows your heart, can sovereignly work by and with God's word in your heart. But what I can do is to urge you all to take seriously the fact of God's immutability both in the certainty of his blessing upon his own and in the certainty of his curse upon the rest of mankind. And today, if you are a Christian, and I'm presuming that all of us here on a Saturday morning are believers in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, to revel in the fact that your God, the unchanging God of Scripture, stands on the bridge of your life as your sure and steadfast captain, if you're not a Christian, I implore you to be reconciled to God through faith in his Son. And I am trusting that the Holy Spirit will take these momentary flashes of truth and illumine your lives thereafter by them forever. May it begin to be so today for all of us. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we bow before your infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being in this moment, and we praise you for your unchanging covenant faithfulness to us, your frail and all too often faithless, fickle children. 
Forgive us, merciful Father, for our inexcusable wandering from your ways, our unjustifiable wasting of your gifts, our irresponsible forgetting of your love. Help us to go from this place this morning with more confidence in your unwavering fatherly love and care than when we entered. And by your grace, may we grow in our love for you and be more faithful to you who are our ever-faithful, never-failing God and friend. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.